You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We have been talking a lot about the city of Corinth the last few weeks. If you were to visit the city of Corinth today, you would find a very interesting mixture of the past and the present. You would find very modern-looking people and very modern-looking buildings and homes and modern conveniences, although the, the current city of Corinth is nothing on the scale that it was in Paul's day when it was home to 750,000 people and that little narrow land bridge that connects Greece to the rest of Macedonia. It's nothing of that size. It's a, a small small town, comparatively speaking. It's also a home to a lot of agriculture. You would see inside the city and outside the city little tree groves with rows of trees and vines, and you would see little very modest-looking homes and gardens and parks and a little agricultural field sort of surrounding that whole area. And then right sort of in the middle of all of that modernness, would be the ruins of the Corinth of Paul's day. And some of those people would be able to literally walk out their back door and across their back lawn and then right step right into the first century and walk down Main Street of Corinth of Paul's day. And you would be, you would be able to walk into Corinth today and walk right down to the Agora, the marketplace. You would be able to walk the Main Street that the Apostle Paul would have walked Dozens, maybe hundreds of times in his 18 months there in Corinth. And there have been archaeological discoveries in the city of Corinth that bear a, uh, that bear mentioning because they are related to Paul and to his ministry there. One of the things that has been discovered in the area, and this is right inside the ruins of the ancient Corinth, is this rock that has inscribed on it, Synagogue of the Hebrews. And it's dated to the middle of the first century. And these were the rocks that would be over top of the doorposts in the synagogues and would say synagogue of the Hebrews. With all likelihood, that is the rock that the Apostle Paul walked back and forth underneath on his way into the only synagogue that was in Corinth in Paul's day before the Jews blasphemed and kicked Paul out. Another thing that has been discovered is something that actually relates to somebody who was in Corinth that Paul knew And Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16, he writes the book of Romans from the city of Corinth, and Paul in 16 verse 23 mentions a man named Gaius, whom he calls the host to him and to the whole church. He says, Gaius greets you, and Erastus, the city treasurer, or you might translate it the city administrator, depending on how Paul was using the word. It could mean treasurer or it could mean administrator. Outside of the theater in Corinth to the south, there is this large paved area, and on one of the paving stones is an inscription that reads this, Erastus, in return for the Edelship, laid the pavement at his own expense. Erastus, in exchange for the Edelship, Edelship was an office, an Edel in the Roman times was an official who was in charge of the public works department. He was in charge of water, roads, bridges, and all of these things. 
He had a large fund of money that was his to dispose of. There was an Erasmus who, in exchange for this government position, laid the pavement outside of the theater at his own expense. Paul mentions an Erasmus dating at the same time who was a city treasurer or a city administrator. Same man. Third thing that has been discovered in Corinth, which is connected to Paul and his ministry there and his visit, is what is called the judgment seat or the bema seat. In fact, it's on the cover of your bulletin. That's a picture of the bema seat, at least the ruins of it. That raised platform there is where Gallio would have stood or sat, and the area that is lower there in front of it is where Paul, the accused, would have stood before Gallio as Gallio gave his sentence. So you can picture Gallio standing up there in all of his royal robes, the Apostle Paul standing down there in front of Gallio, and all of the accusers sitting and standing around waiting to hear the judgment against the Apostle Paul. You say, where is that scene at? That's in Acts chapter 18, and you'll need to have your Bibles open and looking at Acts chapter 18. Luke gives us an incident there that happens right here at this place that you're looking at in the front of your bulletin in Acts chapter 18. We're going to cover today the rest and the end of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. We're going to travel with him through this one incident in Corinth, all the way from Corinth through Centria to Ephesus and on to Caesarea to Jerusalem and then all the way to Antioch. We've got a lot of ground to cover today with the Apostle Paul. We're going to finish up his second missionary journey. At the end of this second journey, we see that there are two promises that have been made and two promises that have been kept. First, the Lord kept His promise to Paul. And then second, Paul kept a promise that he made to the Lord. I want you to look at those two things with me this morning. Beginning at verse 12, let's look at the promise that the Lord kept that He made to Paul. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. I want you to notice that that is the fulfillment and the keeping of a promise that the Lord made to Paul. Do you remember what the promise was? We looked at it last week. It's up in verses 9 and verse 10. The Lord appeared to Paul in the night by a vision, and He said, Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you to harm you. Do you remember that promise? Protection. Paul, you might be attacked, but no one is going to attack you and harm you. Paul said, all right. So he set up camp in Corinth and he stayed there 18 months. Now verses 12 through verse 17 is an example of to us of just how that promise was fulfilled. The Apostle Paul was attacked, but as you're going to see, he was not harmed. Now verse 12, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, allows us to put a little date in the margin of our Bible because it says, while Gallio was proconsul in Achaia. That's the governor of the region or the Roman province of Achaia. We know from secular history, from ancient documents, that Gallio reigned from the summer of 51 A.D. to the summer of 52 A.D. So this incident with Paul before Gallio occurs somewhere in that 
one year period of time that Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Now I want you to stop for just a second and step back and take a big picture look at what we've covered so far in the book of Acts. How long has it been from the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to this event with the Apostle Paul in 52 AD? About 20 years, right? Just under 20 years has taken has gone by. In that 20 years, the Gospel of Jesus Christ has gone from Jerusalem south into Africa through the Philippian through the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip's ministry. It has gone north into Syria. Uh, history tells us it also went east, but Luke doesn't cover that in the book of Acts. It's gone north into Syria, and by the ministry of the Apostle Paul, he has taken the Gospel and evangelized the island of Crete, the Galatian region, Pamphylia, Pisidia. He's taken the Gospel to Macedonia, to Achaia, and before we get done today, he will have planted a work in the city of Ephesus, in the region of Asia, and gone back in 12 years. In 12 years, the Gospel has landed in Judea, Phoenicia, Syria, Cilicia, Cyprus, Galatia, Lyconia, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Lydia. All Roman provinces in 20 years. Five of our books of our New Testament have been written. Matthew, Mark, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Thessalonians. And all of this without a printing press, without computers, without the radio, without TV, internet, mass communication, or even mass transit. It's been a busy 20 years, hasn't it? In 20 years' time, the Gospel has gone from Jerusalem halfway to Rome by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now back to Gallio, verse 12 of Acts chapter 18. He was proconsul in Achaia. Now, we know a couple of really interesting things about Gallio, and I want to share them with you. First of all, we know a little bit about Gallio's family. He comes from a very famous family. He was the adopted son of Seneca the Elder. Seneca the Elder was an orator and a teacher of rhetoric and oration. Very popular, very well-known uh, figure in, in the Rome at that time. His brother was Seneca the Younger. Seneca the Younger was a Stoic philosopher. And by the time Paul is standing here before Gallio, Gallio's brother, Seneca the Younger, was a tutor to Nero. Nero would eventually become the emperor of Rome, and when Nero was made emperor of Rome, Gallio's brother Seneca was made an advisor to the emperor. Now just on a side note here, Nero was a sociopath, a madman, as were most of the Roman emperors of the day. He was a, a madman. And during Nero's reign, Seneca the Younger and Gallio, the two brothers, hatched a plot to overthrow Nero, and they were found out. They were temporarily pardoned. This is, of course, all after Acts chapter 18. They were temporarily pardoned, but then Nero became suspicious of Seneca and Gallio and a lot of his friends. And emperors did this on a regular basis. They would think somebody was trying to poison them, somebody was out to take the throne, somebody was out to subvert them, and so they would have these purgings where they would just kill all their friends and family and advisors and and brothers and sisters and everybody else. And that's what Nero did. He eventually forced Seneca to commit suicide because he suspected Seneca. This is an interesting question. If somebody forces you to commit suicide, is it still suicide? Or is it just murder? He was forced to commit suicide, and Gallio died as a result of that too. Gallio served for one year 
in Achaia. He came down with a hemorrhage in his lung. He went to Egypt to recover away from the humidity of the Mediterranean Sea. He eventually went back to Rome where that's when he tried to overthrow Nero and then Nero had him killed after that. The second interesting thing that we know about Gallio is that this guy was incredibly well liked. His brother Seneca said of him, no mortal man is so pleasant to any one person as Gallio is to everybody. He earned the nickname Sweet Gallio. Everybody loved this guy. He was genuinely a gracious, nice had a, that type of a personality and demeanor that he was friends with everybody. He could walk into a room and work the room. Everybody loved Gallio, except for maybe Sosthenes, which you see at the end of the chapter. He might have been the exception. He was beaten and Gallio didn't seem concerned. But other than Sosthenes, everybody loved Gallio. A very generous, very nice, very gracious man. His brother was the uh, advisor to a madman. And Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, and during his reign, the Jews, like they always did in nearly every city that the Apostle Paul visited, they trumped up these charges against the Apostle Paul, and they bring him down to the judgment seat to appear before Gallio. Look at verse 12. It says the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul, and they brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And friends, what I want you to notice here is that no matter how righteous you are, no matter how you guard your conduct, no matter how above board you are in your ministry and in your message, you are not going to be immune from somebody saying slanderous or accusing things against you. The Apostle Paul was absolutely innocent of these charges. But that doesn't stop him from raising the accusation. So they bring Paul in before this judgment seat, which is where trials would take place, judgments would be issued, people would be tried for crimes, And here is their accusation. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now here's what's behind their accusation. Judaism that the Jews were practicing was what was called a religio licita, a legal religion under Rome. When the Romans conquered an area, they would take all of the major religions in that district or in that area and they would make them officially legal. So that within the Roman Empire... Everybody had the religious freedom to worship God however they wanted, whatever God they wanted, without any fear of government intrusion. And the only way that those rights would be taken away was if somebody was guilty of insurrection or rebellion. Then they would lose their rights to worship their God. The religious freedoms would be taken away. So the Jews are enjoying all of these religious freedoms that come to them through Rome. And what these Jews are bringing before Gallio is a case that's saying... This man, Paul, encourages men to worship our God different from what is written in our law. The accusation is this. The Apostle Paul and his ministry and this Christian sect is not part of Judaism. It's not part of our ancestral traditions, our background, our heritage. It has nothing to do with the Jewish way of life and this legal religion. Therefore, since Paul is rejected by us and his ministry has nothing to do with our faith, It's something entirely different. This man does not deserve the religious protection that is afforded to Judaism. In essence, what they're seeking to do is get Christianity outlawed by saying the Apostle Paul is preaching a method and a way of worshiping God that is contrary to how we worship God. We don't recognize that. And what they're trying to do is get Gallio to say, to make a decision as to whether or not Paul was 
under this religious protection. He's not part of us. Now, if Gallio recognizes that the Apostle Paul and his ministry and his faith are not any part of Judaism, then by default, what Paul is doing is illegal. By default, what the Apostle Paul's ministry is all about, it would be completely outlawed. It would become illegal in the Roman province. So can you see how a lot hinges on Gallio's decision here? If he decides favorable to Paul, it's going to set a precedent. If he decides unfavorable to Paul, it's going to set a precedent. And if he decides unfavorable to Paul, and he recognizes that what Paul is preaching has nothing to do with Old Testament Judaism, he will in effect outlaw Christianity, which would make Paul's ministry tremendously difficult. And I think that that's what's behind the Jews' accusation all along. This precedent would be used against Paul in every city he visited and they would keep him bogged down with legal battles and legal issues and being thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. There is a lot that rests on Gallio's decision. Now you might well imagine that the Apostle Paul was chomping at the bit to make his defense, wouldn't you? Give me an opportunity... To preach, Paul would say, and I'll show you how everything that I preach about Christ and the Scriptures is the fulfillment of all that the prophets have promised and predicted and prophesied all the way up until now. Christianity is in itself the fulfillment of all of Old Testament Judaism. That's the case he would make. But Paul doesn't even have a chance to make his case. Verse 14 says, while Paul was opening his mouth to speak, Gallio cut him off. Now, the minute Gallio would begin to speak, if I were Paul, I would get these butterflies in my stomach. And I would be thinking to myself, whoa, before you make a decision, let me make my case. But Gallio, generous, kind, gracious, great guy that he is, makes the decision and demonstrates that at least in this instance, he's very discerning, very wise, and look what he decides. Verse 15, or 14, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. If you brought this man in here and he were guilty of murder, I would tolerate this court. If you had brought this man in here and he were guilty of insurrection or some crime or some violence or some terrible thing against the nation of Rome, if you had brought him in here with that accusation, I would tolerate you. Now, it doesn't sound like Gallio is all too pleased with what the Jews have brought before him, does it? I would put up with you. But look what he says. But if there are questions, verse 15, about words and names in your own law, look after yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge in these things. Gallio is able to see right through their little charade. And he says this, if you had brought him in here with some real accusation, some substantial crime that he had committed, I would tolerate you. But this has to do not with anything between Paul and Rome. This has to do with something in your own sphere, your own religion. So in Gallio's mind, he just says, the Apostle Paul is guilty for interpreting and applying the Old Testament, your law, the names and the prophecies in a way that you don't like. This is an in-house debate with you Jews. Get out of my court. I want nothing to do with it. Leave me alone. And he runs them away from the judgment seat. Look what it says at the end of Gallio's message. He runs them off from the judgment seat. I'm not going to take part in your theological squabbles. Take your little theological issues somewhere else. You deal with it in-house. Get out of my court. 
He basically kicks it right out of court. Now, does that or does that not set a precedent? It does set a precedent. This non-ruling or this non-decision in the matter is in actuality a decision. Because here's what Gallio has decided. On court record, Gallio has said this is kicked out of court because Paul belongs to Old Testament Judaism. And if these Jews have a problem with the message that he's preaching, which is Old Testament Judaism, they need to deal with it in-house. has nothing to do with Rome. That sets the precedent. For the next 12 years, Christianity would remain a protected religion in the Roman Empire until Nero would reverse that policy and launch the first official empire-wide persecution of Christians in 63 AD. But until that time, Christianity would enjoy protection, freedom of religion. And listen, from this point forward, the accusations brought against Paul by the Jews are of a different nature entirely. It's no longer brought before these Roman people until Paul appeals to Rome. Get out of my court. This is in-house thing. You deal with it. That sets the precedent. Now what I want you to notice here, folks, is how the Lord turned all of that judicial, legal squabble, how the Lord turned all of it around. Gallio set a precedent that would protect Paul and protect his ministry and legalize Christianity and everything that goes along with that. Now Paul would be free to preach and to evangelize and to worship and do anything that he wanted with the protections of Rome. Well, as a result of that, the Jews didn't like it. So they says it says in verse 16 that he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Now, verse 17 presents more problems to us or questions than it does answers. Here are all the questions that come up in verse 17. Who are the they all? Who, who's doing the beating? That's the first question. Is it the Jews who have brought this accusation before Gallio? Or is it the lictors, the policemen who are in charge of the of the court there, did they grab the leader of the synagogue and begin beating him in front of all these Jews as a way of saying, keep your little religious squabbles out of our court? Or was the they all a reference to all of the Gentiles who were using this opportunity to vent their anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish sentiments on Sosthenes? Second, who is Sosthenes? Now Paul mentions the Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul mentions the Sosthenes, whom he calls our brother, who was in Corinth. I think that this is the same Sosthenes. The third question is, why are they beating him? What is this supposed to accomplish? Now, the context seems to indicate that it's the Jews who brought the accusation against Paul. It's the Jews that grabbed Sosthenes and took him down before the judgment seat and started beating him. But now you see the problem. Why would the Jews beat the leader of their own synagogue? Why did they beat their own synagogue leader? Is it because he botched the case against Paul and got Paul off and now this religious sentiment, they grabbed their lawyer, the guy that represented him, and they start beating him and venting their frustrations that he messed up this whole case against Paul? I think there's a way of understanding what's going on here that sort of answers all the questions and doesn't raise any questions or objections, and it would be this. Who was the first leader of the synagogue in Corinth? Do you remember from a couple weeks back? He became a believer in all of his household, verse 8. His name was Crispus. He was the leader of the synagogue. Well, once he became a believer and started meeting with Paul, he was no longer welcome in the synagogue any more than Paul was. So once he left the synagogue, somebody came in to take his place, which is why Sosthenes now is called the leader of the synagogue. Sosthenes took Crispus's place. My suspicion is that Sosthenes began to feel very 
sympathetic toward Paul, toward the Gospel, and toward the Christians, and may even have by this time become a brand new believer. And the Jews are so infuriated at the fact that they have lost two leaders to the synagogue that they trump up this thing and they say, enough is enough, we're going to bring this before Gallio. They bring it before Gallio. Sosthenes is still the leader of the synagogue, but a brand new convert. And so Gallio rules against them in favor of Paul. And the Jews, Gallio essentially says, this is a Jewish thing. You deal with it in-house. And the Jews say, all right, you want us to deal with it in-house? We'll show you how we deal with blasphemers in-house. So they grab this brand new Christian, Sosthenes, who's now Paul's brother, and they begin beating him in front of the judgment seat. Which is why Gallio is completely consistent with his word. Verse 17, it says, he didn't care about any of these things. Gallio says, you deal with it in-house. They say, we'll show you how we did take care of this. We'll show you how we Jews police ourselves. So they beat Sosthenes, who's now a brand new believer. And Gallio says, you're dealing with it in-house? I don't care. You do what you want. You take your battles somewhere else. What I want you to notice here, folks, is we do know this for sure. Sosthenes got a beating. I don't know why, and I don't exactly know who it was, but those are my suspicions. But what is important and what we should recognize or take note of is how the Lord protected Paul. Paul didn't get the beating, did he? The Jews didn't mob Paul and give Paul the beating, even though Paul was standing right there. Because the Lord told Paul, I will protect you and no man will attack you to harm you. That is why Luke included this part in the book of Acts for us to see exactly how it was that the Lord protected Paul. He protected Paul and he turned the Jews' evil intentions and the motives back upon themselves. What they intended for evil, the Lord worked for good. They brought this case against Paul intending to make Christianity an illegal religion and to set a precedent that they could hound Paul with in every city that he went to. And what did the Lord do? Put it right back in their face and ended up giving religious protection to Paul and to his ministry and protecting Paul at the same time. Folks, let me encourage you with something. As you see the enemy advancing and bringing assault after assault after assault against Christians and their faith, particularly at this season, when you dare to mention the name of Christ at Christmas, don't lose heart. And you see these legal cases being brought against us, sometimes it's tremendously discouraging, isn't it? And you just wonder, why is it that Legal challenge after legal challenge after legal challenge is brought against the cause of Christ and against His people who take the opportunity of His birth and the celebration of His birth to proclaim His name. Sometimes it's easy to lose heart. Don't do it. My suspicion is this, that if we were able to see the end game, we would want it no other way. Because the Lord has a way of taking tremendous, what appear to be setbacks, and turning them on their head for the advancement of truth. History is full of that. That is what the Lord does. So don't be discouraged at all that the enemy attacks. Because when the enemy assaults, the Lord sets a trap and he falls into it, and it ends up accomplishing the opposite of what the enemy intends, both in the short term and in the long term. Second thing I want you to notice is how the Lord used Gallio. Was he a believer? He's a pagan. He's an unbeliever, a rank unbeliever. But this is an awesome example of Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that? The hearts of men and women and kings and queens, and yes, judges who sit in our courts, 
are in the hands of the Lord and He turns those hearts wherever He wants. And there's no judge, no king, no prince, and no proconsul ever that hands down a ruling that the Lord is not allowed to be handed down. He turns it where He wishes. That's how the Lord kept His promise to Paul. Now I want you to look at how Paul kept his promise to the Lord. Beginning in verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. You remember Priscilla and Aquila? Or Aquila and Priscilla? The two that Paul met when he came to Corinth, they were already believers, they were leather workers with Paul. He, he began to lodge with them, and they started taking part in his ministry, helping him out, and they're ministering together. So after a good many days, after this 18 months that Paul has been in Corinth has elapsed, Paul set sail with Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 18 says that in Centria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now that to me, I don't know about you, but that whole phrase strikes me as kind of odd for the Apostle Paul at first blush. What's he doing taking an Old Testament vow? Why is he keeping an Old Testament vow? Why does he have his hair cut? What does that have to do with a vow? Is the Apostle Paul slipping back into Old Testament Judaism? Is he trying to drag all of that Old Testament ceremonial law and the vows and the feasts? Is he starting to slip back into that and sort of backslide into his Old Testament heritage? Is he trying to drag that into the church? Is Paul being legalistic? Doesn't the man understand that these ceremonies that were part of the Old Testament law have passed away? They've been nailed to the cross. They no longer, these cultural things no longer form a barrier between Jew and Gentile. Isn't this the apostle to the Gentiles? What is he doing taking a Jewish view on a, Gen a Jewish vow on a Gentile mission and fulfilling the, Ju the Jewish vow on the Gentile mission? Is this not the same apostle that in Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians would argue that all of these ceremonial elements of the law have nothing to do with today, with the new covenant, with Christ, the church, and Gentiles, and salvation? Isn't that the same apostle Paul? What's going on here? Friends, there was a time when the apostle Paul thought that vows and feasts and sacrifices and all of the ceremony and all of the cultural trappings of the nation of Israel played a part in him gaining his righteousness before God. There was a time when the Apostle Paul thought that these things played some role in his salvation and gave him a righteous standing in the presence of God. But then on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul realized that all of his righteousness before God is filthy rags. And so now the Apostle Paul realizes the righteousness that I have before God is not on the basis of all of the feasts and the vows and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and all of those things. The righteousness that I have before God comes to me from God through Christ on the basis of faith in what Christ has done for me. So now that Paul no longer is trying to stand righteous before God by keeping all of these vows, the Apostle Paul, as a Jew is free to partake in these matters which would be indifferent. He's not trying to be righteous, friends. This is not an expression. This is not an attempt to gain righteousness in the sight of God for Paul. It is an expression of his gratitude to God and an expression of his thanksgiving to God. Let me share with you a secret. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. should not surprise you that a Jewish rabbi in the first century, would express his thanksgiving and his gratitude to God by doing something Jewish, traditional, cultural. How do we express our thanksgiving to God, particularly at this time of the year? You go hunting, you become a glutton, and then you watch football. 
And thus you give thanks to the Lord. It's a cultural expression that we have. We do it every year. The Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow. Now here are the requirements for a Nazarite vow. Numbers chapter 6, you can read all about the Nazarite vow. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall, and listen to the requirements, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat flesh, fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. Nazarite vows were typically taken as a way of expressing gratitude and thanksgiving to God for protection and for blessings received. Now, can you think of a blessing or a protection that the Apostle Paul might be wanting to thank God for? We just looked at it, didn't we? It's likely that incident that prompted the Apostle Paul to take a Nazarite vow in which he said at the end of a certain period of time, I'll cut my hair. Now, here's how you fulfill the Nazarite vow. According to Numbers chapter 6, you took, you went to the temple, to the place of meeting or to the tabernacle, and you cut your hair off, and you presented to the priest animals for sacrifice, a sin offering and some other offerings and some grain, and you presented that to the priest, and he would offer that up to the Lord in a burnt offering, and then you would present, you would have the priest cut your hair at the temple, and you would present your hair to the priest, and the priest would add that to the sacrifice and burn the hair up with the animal. That was how you fulfilled or kept your Nazarite vow. Now, provisions in Paul's day were made for people who were a long ways away when their vow term came up. And they made the provision that you could cut your hair in whatever city or whatever place you were when your vow was complete, but within 30 days you had to present your hair at the temple in Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that that's how the Jews did that. Once the Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire, they made that provision. So Paul left Corinth, on his way to set sail, he stops in this seaport city of Centria, waiting to board ship. The Apostle Paul gets his hair cut, shaves his head, takes his hair, and he heads off to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow. Luke says he was keeping a vow, and the wording that Luke uses indicates that this was the process that the Apostle Paul was in. The days of his separation came up, the Apostle Paul cut his hair, and he heads to Jerusalem with his hair to present his hair at the temple and with the animal sacrifices to keep his vow. The Apostle Paul made a vow to the Lord that he would be a Nazarite and he wouldn't cut his hair for a period of time. That time came up. So with his hair in tow, as he heads off and sets sail for Ephesus, he stops in Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are there with him. And Paul, as he did, waiting maybe for the next ship to leave, he's in a little bit of a hurry, he's got to get to Jerusalem, he happens to be in Ephesus through a, sab a Sabbath. So the, Luke says in verse 19 that they came to Ephesus and he left them there. That's Priscilla and Aquila. And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Remember, that's what Paul does in every city. Entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. Uh, hold on a second. They asked him to stay? They asked him to stay? Did we read that right? How often did that happen to the Apostle Paul? Will you stay with us for a while? Did he ever get that kind of reception? 
every city that he went to, they opposed him. They drive him out of town. And in Ephesus, they ask him to stay. We want to hear more. Stay here and be our teacher. And the apostle says, no, I can't do it. If the Lord wills, I'll return to you sometime in the future. And off he sails to Caesarea. Now, why didn't Paul stay? He was keeping a vow. He had 30 days from Centuria to get to Jerusalem. In every city that Paul went to, he wanted to stay and the Jews ran him out of town. He lands in Ephesus, the Jews want him to stay, Paul willingly leaves town. What do you make of that? Paul, these people need the gospel. What a wide open door for ministry. What an opportunity. You've been invited to stay. They've asked you to stay here, Paul. They love you. You're the most popular guy in the synagogue. Why would you, why would you leave? I have a vow to keep. Now Paul may have reasoned in his mind and said, I know that the vows are part of the old covenant thing. It's a ceremonial. It has no binding on my righteousness. I could not keep this vow and it really wouldn't have anything to do with my salvation. And here I am present, I mean, I got my hair right here in a bag with me, I know, and I'm trying to keep this vow, but here I'm presented with an opportunity and a circumstance that would really be beneficial for my ministry, for the Jews in Ephesus, for the worldwide spread of the gospel. Who knows what could come out of this? The Lord knows the condition of my heart. He knows I'm thankful. He knows I'm grateful. He would overlook this one discretion if I just didn't keep that vow and stayed here and took this tremendous opportunity that's been presented to me. He could have reasoned like that. But it's not an issue of ministry for Paul. It was an issue of being a man of his word, finishing what he started, keeping his word. The Apostle Paul knew that in the Old Testament it said it's better to not ever make a vow than to make a vow and to not keep the vow. For Paul, keeping his word, keeping his integrity, finishing what he started meant more to him than any opportunity to minister because he was a man of integrity. And yeah, God knows the heart, but God sees the heart of the individual who says, I'll do this, and then they don't see it through to conclusion. Or I'll do this, and then they bail ship halfway through because something else comes up. The Apostle Paul kept his word. He had to leave on his way to Jerusalem because he was keeping a vow. So Luke says he sailed to Caesarea. He landed in Caesarea, 65 miles outside of Jerusalem, the nearest major seaport on the coast of Judea. He lands in Caesarea and travels, Luke says, he went up and greeted the church, went up and go down. Those are terms that they used for going into Jerusalem. He always went up elevation-wise to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, you went down to anywhere else. Because Jerusalem was the holy city on a hill. So he went up to Jerusalem. He greeted the church there and presented his hair and fulfilled his vow, which is why he came to Jerusalem, greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. The Apostle Paul went home. This journey has taken Paul two years. Twice as long as the journey that he took, his first missionary journey, Twice as long, not only in duration, but also in length and distance. The Apostle Paul has traveled 2,800 miles in this two years' time. He spent 18 months of that two years in Corinth. He traveled 2,800 miles, which is the equivalent of going from Houston, Texas, to Washington, D.C., and back. He visited four churches that he started on his first missionary journey. He planted five new churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and Ephesus. And now he has met Luke, Priscilla and Aquila, 
He's sort of adopted Timothy, who has come along with him and taken on this discipleship project. He has finally, after two years, returned home. And now we might ask Paul, is it time to hang it up? Slow down a little bit. You're pushing 50 years old, Paul. It's not as easy traveling as it used to be. You don't recover as fast from the beatings as as you used to recover. You can't run as fast when people are after you. Paul, why don't you hang it up? You've suffered enough. You've sacrificed enough. You've traveled enough. You've preached more, worked more, won more converts, planted more churches than any other apostle or any other Christian in the then known world, likely. You've done more for Christ than most people do in a lifetime, just in the short period that you've been a believer. Hang it up, Paul. Look at verse 23. Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Off he goes. Number three. Third missionary journey is ahead of him. Friends, if you're going to make an impact for Jesus Christ, and if you're going to leave your mark on history, then you cannot slow down and you cannot let up, and you cannot stop until the Lord takes you home. That is why the Jews knew we have to kill him to shut him up. If only it were that difficult to shut the rest of us up. Father, we thank you for your word and for the tremendous lessons that we learned from Paul, from his tenacity, from his passion, from his drive, and from his wholehearted, zealous commitment to Jesus Christ, to being a person of integrity, and to preaching and proclaiming your word, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with everybody in every land. Thank you for that example, and we pray, God, that you would extend to us the grace to become men and women who would follow Paul as he follows Christ. We ask this for Christ's name and Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.